Well, good morning again. Uh, we're continuing our summer series uh, that we started several weeks ago, um, looking at the 12 steps in a 12-step recovery program. And today we come to step seven. Uh, the text that we're going to be looking at this morning is John chapter 5, uh, verses 2 through 9. Some of you may still be wondering and asking why in the world we're looking at this, and we don't know either, uh, is, is probably the best description that David has given. Um, we're asking, what does this have to do with me? Um, David has encouraged us greatly and reminded us each week, and I'm going to do it again, that the 12 steps aren't just about addiction recovery, but are ultimately about a trustful intimacy with God. If you want to grow spiritually in your relationship with, with God and with Jesus, if you want to mature and deepen in your intimacy with him, with the God of the Bible, the God who created you, who loves you and pursued you for himself in the person and work of Jesus, his son, then the 12 steps are actually a tremendously helpful way to do that. Uh, they're to be taken in order, not skipping over any step. And so to recap where we've been, the first three steps, which we never really leave ever, go like this. My One, my life has become unmanageable and I'm powerless to fix it. I can't do it. Two, God can. And third, I think I'll let him. Uh, in the fourth step, we take a fearless and searching moral inventory. And then step five, we've admitted to ourselves, to God, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. And then last week, David looked at step six, where we become entirely ready to have God remove all of our defects of character. If we don't get the first three steps, and really if we don't get four, five, and six either, then step seven is never going to happen. So whether or not your life has been touched deeply by addiction, uh, we all come to this place broken. We all come to this place desperate and needy for the gospel of Jesus to change us, to transform us, and to heal us. And so the question before us this morning is this, do you really want to change? David asked that last week, and it's before us again. Do you really want to be healed? So let's look at John chapter 5 together, verses 2 to 9, printing your bulletin. This is the word of our God given for his glory and for our good. Please read along with me. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace to us. We thank you that you've given us your word, and we pray that you would meet with us by your spirit during this time, that you would change us, that you would soften us, that you would make us attentive to your voice. We know that many in here are excited about you and what you're doing. For some of us that used to describe us, and for some of us, we honestly can't even believe that we find ourselves within these walls this morning. Uh, we ask that you would meet with us all, that you would change us by your grace and goodness and your love for us, and that you would show us who you are and who we are in light of your gospel. It's in Christ's name we come. 
Amen. In the 11th chapter of C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, he tells a story of a young man who's tormented by this little red lizard that sits on his shoulder, and this lizard mocks him. And the lizard really represents for Lewis the indwelling sin that all of us struggle and deal with. And this fiery angel shows up, and he offers to get rid of the lizard for this man. And he asks, would you like me to make him quiet? Of course, the man replies. Of course I would. And getting closer to the man, the, the angel answered, then I'll kill him. The man responds, ooh, uh, you know, look out. You're burning me. You're getting too close. Keep away. And the man begins to retreat. And the angel says, don't you want him killed? The man responds, you, don't, you didn't say anything about killing him at first. I, I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. You know, can't we do it another time? Look, it's not that big of a deal. I'm sure I'll be able to keep him under control. I'll be able to keep him in order. You know, I'll, I'll think about it. I really will, but, but not today. You know, some other day. And after all, why are you getting so close to me? Why are you torturing me? You're hurting me now just being this close. And then meanwhile, the lizard starts chattering and mocking and pleading again in this man's ear. Be careful. He can do what he says. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. How could you live? I'll be, I'll be good. I admit sometimes I've gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. Then the angel says, have I your permission? The man responds, I know it will kill me. The story from Lewis, which we're going to come back to later in the, serv- in the sermon, uh, really brings us to our passage this morning. It really brings us to step seven. Before God, we, every one of us in this room, on this earth, are all like the invalid that we read about in John chapter 5, for the, who's been an invalid for 38 years. We're helpless. We're completely and utterly incapable of fixing ourselves, of being made whole on our own. What we've been doing to change apart from the reliance on Jesus and his gospel, no matter how broken and rebellious or how religious and upright our plans have been, they haven't worked. They're not working, and they're never going to work. We have to see, like the man in Lewis's story and like the invalid in our text this morning, we're broken, we're needy, and we're incapable of change on our own. But Jesus shows up like the angel in the great divorce, and he initiates all on his own, apart from anything good in the invalid, and he poses the question, do you want to be healed? So how about you this morning? Jesus stands before us this morning, and he asks the same question, do you want to be healed? How will you respond? Do you respond like the invalid in John 5? Notice he doesn't give Jesus a straight answer. Uh, he gives excuses. You'd think he'd, he'd say, of course, why do you think I'm here? I've been sitting at this pool forever. This is a silly question. Of course I'd like to be healed. But he doesn't do that. Now that may be implied by the fact that he is just there at the pool, but we could understand it in a different way too. I mean, look at verse 7. He offers excuses. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. He's saying, look, I don't have any friends to help me. I try on my own, and it doesn't work. 
I'm all alone. No one will help me. It's not my fault. If only I could get into that pool. Maybe there, there's even this hint of, of having become comfortable with his state of brokenness. You know, look, this is, this is all I know. This is really who I am. And if this was taken away from me, then what would I be? Who would I be then? So have we, have we become comfortable with our struggles? Have we become comfortable with our brokenness and our shame, with our victimhood even, with our sin? Or do we minimize it? You know, it's, it's not that bad, like the lizard. It's not that bad. I really, I, I have it under control most of the time. It's just this little thing. I've tried to fix it. It hasn't worked. But it's all I know. It's really who I am and who I've become. But do we see the one that's standing in front of us, the only one that can heal us, the only one that can fix us and change us and forgive us and make us whole? If we've done the first six, six steps of the, of, of the 12 steps, you know, we've recognized our need. We've recognized our inability. We've even confessed and have become willing to change. But now we have to ask, do I want to be healed? So what does step seven say? Step seven says, humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings. We're going to focus on just two things this morning, on humility and asking. So first, we humbly ask. We have to come to a place of humility. It's back to the first three steps again. I'm powerless to change my life. It has become unmanageable. But God, you can do it. I need you to, and I want you to. I'm going to get out of the way, as it were, and stop pretending to be God, to stop pretending as if I'm in control of the people and places and things around me. What humility is not is it's not controlling our change. It's not controlling our transformation. It's not me setting up my own self-help program for me being rid of my sin, me being rid of my addictions and my shortcomings. I mean, you know this. If you are in charge of, of, your, of, of your, your change, if you are in, in charge of your transformation, what happens when we try to take control? We usually trade one addiction or one issue for another. Uh, we usually make it worse. You know, sure, it might not be a controlled or illegal substance anymore. It might be religious piety. It might even be moralism. It might be something else. But the reality is, is we're not allowing God to get down deep and work at the root idols and the root issues that are plaguing us, and we're just replacing one issue for another. You know, humility also, it's not bargaining. It's not, you know, God, if you do this for me, then... I'll, I'll finally, I'll do this part. I'll, if you do your part, I'll do my part. And if I see and understand what you're doing, then, then I'll do what I'm supposed to do. It's not even trying to earn your healing. It's not trying to earn your change where you feel owed and entitled to transformation by you performing your new set of policies so perfectly and so well. Humility is none of that. It's stepping back. It's admitting the first step again, and it's allowing God to be God, and it's allowing him to do what he does best, which is something that we could never do and something that we can't ever do. I heard one person in recovery say it this way uh, this week. They said it's submitting to the surgery of God. I mean, think about it. When you've, when you've submitted to a surgeon finally, you're saying, I'll allow you to cut on me and to perform surgery. Now, during the surgery, you're not awake Maybe you are, but you're not teaching. 
You're not guiding. You're not informing the surgeon, hey, do this part. Hey, you're not really doing a good job here. Um, I think I need you to, you know, cut that part out and clean that one up. Hey, is, you know, this person over here doing a good enough job? When you're on the surgery table, you've given up complete control to the surgeon. You're allowing them to cut, to repair, to clean up as they see best. So it's submitting truly to the surgery of God, both pleasant and unpleasant, both painful and comforting. So if you remember the man from the great divorce with the lizard, we can be so fearful of change sometimes that if you take this and you kill this, you're really killing me. And when we do that, we've embraced our brokenness and our, our victim mentality, and we've let it define us, and we've let it become our identity. So we need to see our proper place as human beings, not as God, but as needy beggars. And we need to allow the reality of our condition as desperate, broken, needy people to drive us to the one that's standing in front of us, asking us if we want to be healed. Because he's the only one that can do it anyways. Lewis says elsewhere, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Lewis and John, as it were, are inviting us to lift our eyes, to lift our heads and our hearts and our lives up to the one who is above us and who created us and pursued us to the point of the death of Jesus to draw us to himself and to make us his. Keller reminds us in The Reason for God that the Christian gospel is that I'm so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I'm so loved and valuable that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both sniveling and swaggering. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself nor less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. Humility is having a proper understanding of who we are before God and who God is. We're all broken messes with different struggles, with different addictions, with different idols. Some of them are more socially acceptable than others, but are addictions and idols nonetheless. You know, we wrestle with this need to be in control of everything, with work, with school, with relationships, with our children, with our spouses, with our parents. And when that control is threatened, how do we respond I respond with anger, typically, with lashing out, or in other instances, retreating and avoiding and comfort-seeking because I've forgotten the gospel, that I'm so flawed, that Jesus had to die for me, and yet I'm so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to. And when you get that, when I get that, when humility comes, that naturally leads us to asking God to remove our shortcomings. So when we understand and come to grips with who God is and who we are before him, it leads us to asking God to go to work on us in his time, in his way, and to the degree that he sees fit. Our asking God is not demanding him to change us, not to to demand that he do it in this way and to take this thing and in this order and to do it by these days. It's not putting conditions on Jesus. There's no entitlement at all in our asking. 
we've gotten rid of that. You owe me this, God, because I've been so good, because I've dealt with so much of this. God's gracious gift of humility has killed that in us. So it's, it's submitting again to the surgery of God, trusting him that he may choose to rid us of our particular pain and struggles, but he also may not. He may do it differently than how we thought he was going to. I mean, if you look at, at Paul's life in the New Testament, Paul prays three times that God remove the thorn in his flesh, and God chooses not to. And says, my grace is sufficient for you. So we trust God and we have become willing to ask him to let him be God and to do as he sees best, irrespective of the results. One of my seminary professors, Michael Williams, put it this way. He says, a lot of the things we're called to do are incremental. We're called to the task and we're not promised success. So in our asking, we are continuing to be faithful to God, walking with him, taking our hands off the reins, as it were, and allowing him to be in control of us, which he already is. We're called to faithfulness, not to success. So we continue to not work out and root out our sin all on our own, because, again, you and I know that never works. We find cheap and counterfeit solutions that don't work, and we trade one problem for another. Richard Rohr uh, put it really helpfully when he's talking about asking God to remove our shortcomings. He says it this way. The way he removes them is to fill up the hole in us with something much better, more luminous, and more satisfying. Then our old shortcomings are not driven away or pushed underground as much as they are exposed and starved for the false program for happiness that they are. We don't run away from or push away or avoid or bury our shortcomings. We allow God to do the hard work of exposing them, of bringing them to the surface, into the light, and exposing them for truly what they are, things that hurt us, things that hurt the people around us, things that Jesus had to die for. And he starves them out. It's like praying like David in the psalm we read earlier uh, for our confession, have mercy on me. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Asking God to heal us is not bargaining with him or trying to earn his favor. It's repentance. We say this old way, it's not working. It's destroying me. It's destroying my family. It's destroying my friends. It's destroying the things that I care about. And it's turning away from those things towards Jesus. And what we need is God to radically change the reference point of our lives. We need, as Thomas Chalmers says, the expulsive power of a new affection. We need love for Jesus, the reality of who he is and what he's done for us in the gospel, that through his life lived for you, his death that he died for you, and this resurrection demonstrating that he is God over all and nothing, not even death itself, has power over him. It's that to drive out our old loves. And so we ask. And we ask back to the uh, Lewis's story in The Great Divorce. The angel asks again, have I permit your permission? May I? The man finally replies, go on. Can't you? Get it over. Do what you like. God help me. God help me. And the next moment, that burning angel closes his grip around the red lizard and he kills it. And the man 
instantly transforms from this ghostly man into this beautiful new creation. And the lizard in its death is transformed into this beautiful, alive, white horse. And the man rides off on it. Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. When we come to Jesus and we don't offer excuses or demands and we simply and humbly ask, he gives us more than we could ever dare dream. He gives us himself. He gives us his status and his life. And he gives us all that is true about him becomes true about us now. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. You've been made new in Jesus if you are his. The old is dead and it doesn't have control over you anymore despite its constant nagging. The reality is you've been made new in Jesus. Hear Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The old you is dead and gone. It's God who lives in you now if you are his, and he is the one willing to move and to act. Ephesians 2.6 says that you're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Hebrews 10.14 says that for one, by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever that which he is making holy. If you are Jesus's, you've been made, you've been declared perfect, not because of your goodness, not because you've got it all together and your badness doesn't keep it away. You've been declared perfect because you came to him. And like the invalid, Jesus is drawn to you, drawn to me in our neediness, in our, in our mess, in our inability, and he initiates and he goes to work and he declares you perfect in him. That is your reality that we have to remember time and time again that no matter what it feels like, no matter what it looks like, no matter what other people say, no matter what we say, that is what's true about us if we are found in Jesus. Well, how can we trust this God to follow through when we humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings? Because he's already demonstrated in Jesus, that he came to do such things because of his love for you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus became all of your shortcomings, all of your brokenness, all of your wickedness, all of your addiction, and they defined him in that moment on the cross. And he took them off of us and put them on himself and he dealt with them forever. He made it possible for you to be brought in as God's adopted and dearly loved child to now live as a truly, as a, as, as a person who is, is loved and is truly human. And he will see it through to the end so that you can have confidence in the midst of struggle in the midst of continued pain and brokenness, despite what the world looks like, despite what it feels like, that if you are in Christ, you can have complete confidence. Listen to Paul in Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will carry it on until into completion until the day of Christ. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus, the one who calls you is faithful 
and he will do it. And 1 John 3, 2 says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This is what's in store for you if you are Jesus's. This is your certain, your guaranteed future. Do you want to be healed? Jesus can do it. So we humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Please pray with me. Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful that you pursue us and that you initiate us. You initiate your grace with us and that you actually bring life and healing and transformation. Help us to turn to you, to run to you, to walk and limp and crawl towards you. Father, we are thankful that what you say about us as new creations is true, that despite what things look like and feel like, despite what our own consciences even say sometimes, we need your voice to be the loudest. And so we ask you that you would make that true as we come to this table now. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.